Welcome to the Church of Mavis Radio Show. It's Friday night at 7.10 p.m. Central. West United Public Radio, 107.7 FM New Orleans. We got Wham here representing. How's it going, hey, Wham? It's it's Wham-like. It's been very Wham-like here. And uh, our guest tonight, Stephen Snyder, and we're going to talk about all kinds of different things. And uh, as part of the, the Halloween lineup, and uh, the Halloween lineup so far has consisted of the, Hall- the trick-or-treat tarot. That was interesting. We got into a tarot that was designed around Halloween, the first show. And then the next show was uh, Freighter Tenebris, The Dark Side of Paganism. That was a good show, and uh, <clears throat> that was uh, very interesting. And at first when I went into that, I didn't realize we were going to be talking about him having an alliance with Lucifer and summoning demons and all that stuff. Like I didn't have a clue. I thought we were talking about paganism. So, I mean, there's some of that, those elements, but whatever, but it got more deep than I anticipated and turned into kind of a Geraldo Rivero uh, kind of situation for me. <laughs> but, well, uh, I have like a robe actually that I can go put on like uh, in the back there. If you want me to do like the full blown Michael Aquino thing for me. Yeah. This guy is pretty much like that on many levels. Yeah. But uh, the funniest part, though, was like, you know, I study different belief systems, but I grew up in Christianity. I think there's something to Christ, but I don't definitely go around saying I'm a Christian and blah, 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 like some holy arsehole all the time. But uh, I love Norse shamanism. I love a lot of different things. Native. I love that stuff. And uh, but there's something about me being from Georgia and my dad being like a, a preacher that I can't get rid of. So when I have someone on, it's like I have these Christian like schoolboy responses, like, oh, an alliance with Lucifer. And I'm kind of like, you can kind of see it on my face. And I don't want it to be there. It's just, damn it, it's there anyway. And I can't get rid of it. I guess I just can't go complete dark side and say, yeah, praise Lucifer. Oh, oh great. Sounds wonderful. But, uh, you know, and then when I've had some psychedelic experiences where I saw some weird reptilian beings that I thought were fallen angels and the devil. So I've had some weird experiences. But like I said about those beings, they talked, they said positive things to me, like seeing dance and write. And I was like Deepak Chopra. And I was like, what? So I hadn't, but my reaction was like, oh my God, I'm seeing the devil. But, uh, but anyway, it was a good show if you haven't seen that one. And tonight's going to be a great show. And our finale show of the season is uh, Denny Sargent, Werewolf Pack Magic. And uh, interview with a werewolf. I mean, he seems like he thinks he's a werewolf. I don't know. Maybe he just doesn't straight out say it. But the whole thing's designed around a magical system of werewolf lycanthropy. So that's going to be the uh, finale of the season for the Halloween lineup. And... Uh, that's going to be a good one. So looking forward to it. So, uh, Stephen, it's great to have you here. If you could at first, what uh, what started you on the catalyst of a journey to the weird? I mean, did you you know, what happened? That's <laughs> <laughs> kind of a fitting question for you to ask me there to start off with, given uh, some of the statements you just made about psychedelics. Uh, in terms of like like high strangeness type of things. I mean, as far as conspiracy stuff goes, I kind of was brought up with that with my dad and what have you, who was always, um, you know, into that sort of milieu. I can remember as a, you know, a preteen, you know, kind of going through Colorado, listening to William Milton Cooper with him on the radio and we were vacationing out there. But in terms of like the weird and the woo-woo stuff, which is where my sort of point of emphasis has always been at, 
Uh, it really went back to the time when I was uh, at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs, um, living on the dorms. This would have been, I think, 2003, I think. Yeah, 2003, maybe 2004. I'm not entirely sure now. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I hadn't done psychedelics up to that point in time. So this was the first time I was able to procure some magic mushrooms. Took them at the uh, dorms, like I was saying. And, you know, the first part of that, well, pretty much most of the trip was, you know, pretty standard thing. You got like uh, some trails some colors, all that good stuff. I mean, it was all pretty groovy and what have you. So um, the campus, right, it would do at the dorms this like kind of midnight snack for the students at the cafeteria. You know, they would go in and they would make like pancakes and eggs, you know, that kind of stuff for you and, you know, cereal. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, I go down because I'm starting to come down, I think, and I'm getting a little hungry. Uh, I walk into the uh, cafeteria and you first got like kind of the seating section and I go through that and, you know, everything's like kosher. And then I get into the actual section where the food is served. And this whole area was already kind of like white looking and what have you. So it's kind of like, uh, you know, it's almost like a clinical uh, medical kind of setting anyway. But when I walk in there, it's like covered in smoke, you know, like there's a smoke machine or something in there. The lights are kind of dimmish and I'm like looking around and, you know, there's like all the different kind of, um, you know, islands and stuff with the food on it that the students can go up to and get stuff. And then there's like the wrap around where they can go and get their um, their trays and load up on stuff. And they're you know going around doing the, that, you know, type of thing. And then in the midst of all of this, are these like seven, eight foot tall gray aliens. And they're just like casually walking around, you know, monitoring stuff, looking around at people and that kind of thing, uh, just observing everything. And I'm just staring there like, oh, wow. Uh, you know, and I mean, I think I must have just been standing there for several minutes, just kind of checking all this out. Like, you know, go like kind of load up on my tray, walk by the, the grays, you know, uh, it's kind of like we're aware that we're looking at each other, but we're kind of pretending like we're not type thing. I don't know. It was really weird. Load my tray up, get food, walk out. And pretty much I totally came down right after that, like the experience ended. Um, but it was definitely one of the most profound things that's ever happened to me. Uh, and it got me really interested in just the whole concept of um, encounters with these, you know, gray alien-like beings that had happened in altered states of consciousness. I was curious, you know, I mean, if I was, I was just totally insane and I was the only person who ever had something like this or if there were other people who had experienced things like that on psychedelics. And that had led me to the, um, the Rick Strassman um, experiments that he did on DMT at the University of Arizona. Is it Phoenix? Something like that? It was, I believe it can't. I know who that is, but I'm not sure about the school. It was somewhere in Arizona, I think. But um, anyway, I had uh, got the book that Strassman did on that. Uh, it's a very fascinating book, and I found that uh, that was a fairly common sighting uh, that people would have on DMT would be gray aliens. And of course, there's you know a certain degree of overlap with that and um, McKenna's machine elves, as I kind of found out later. Uh, so it was, you know, definitely a rabbit hole. And then from there, uh, I had actually kind of started looking into um, the remote viewing stuff because I had, I think just in, you know, random internet searches, I had seen that several of the remote viewers had also reported seeing gray aliens uh, when they were in kind of their altered states traveling 
you know, around the galaxies and the earth and so forth. So, you know, that was all very fascinating to me that people had reported having these encounters with these beings in these, you know, kind of altered states of consciousness. And then um, also that there was kind of a dark side to this, uh, a physical, you know, reality to it that was uh, pretty nasty. And uh, that was cancer, actually. Uh, I was really disturbed to see in the Strassman experiments that a staggering amount of the people in it had gotten cancer. In fact, I think it was after his wife, if I remember correctly, had contracted cancer, he had had to shut down uh, the DMT work that they were doing. And uh, that was the same thing with uh, several of the remote viewers. A couple of them had also succumbed to cancer or had uh, developed it uh, over the course of working on, you know, Stargate and all the other variations on that. I know the, um, oh gosh, the really, uh, the one that they was really celebrated, uh, the remote viewer, the guy that died in like the uh, early to mid 70s. I can't remember his name now, but he was uh, one of the first who had died to cancer. But, um, there was that sort of like dark side to this as well. So, I mean, it did seem like that it could affect you on a physical level uh, as well and not necessarily in a positive way at all times. But, uh, you know, from there that it really kind of opened up like a whole new world to me and a different way of looking at the world in general. And that uh, had really set me off in exploring a lot of the, you know, kind of woo woo weird stuff. And uh, that's interesting about cancer. Well, one of the big reasons we I do the show and the Wamsack experiences, but uh, I had, like I said earlier, testicular cancer and then went through chemo and all that crap. And then a few years later, my dad died. And I started to have a lot of different experiences from UFOs to every house I moved to, to uh, uh, seeing different beings, some cloaked beings in the woods around the black box, uh, some reptilian type beings that seemed like holograms or holographic and they look like Mayan gods. To different things uh and under different states of consciousness but a lot of them sober as well i saw sober two beings of light leave my house and fly into the heavens as if they'd been in my house and flew through the roof and went into the heavens after something told me to go outside and look in the sky above my house but one of the things that i started thinking about when you're talking about the alien gray experience i was doing a christina a fiance she uh, was doing a hospice cure for her grandmother and who was passing away she's passed away now the grandmother but uh i had this situation where i would let the white light of the sun fill my uh body usually on pot or whatever and just kind of like close your eyes and let that white light fill you at a window or outside then i went back in the house and i saw a gray alien standing over the old lady it was kind of like astral and it saw me and it it, it reacted and also Christina saw one standing over me when I was sleeping late at night. So I had never, I'd always said I've never seen a gray, you know, and, you know, and every time I heard a gray story expressed disdain, but I finally saw one. And uh, it was like the way it reacted was like, you, you know, like it was surprised I saw it. It was almost like the sun gifted me with sight or something and I could see it, but it was standing over the lady that Pat that was passing. And, uh, Interestingly enough, a lady from the network, Michelle Disrocher, said there was, uh, she's been on all kinds of shows, that there was a portal there and Gray's going back and forth and weird stuff. We had the glass explode, so a lot of different experiences. But it's interesting about the Gray thing, because when I saw them, it was kind of like they were doing that. They were there for some reason. I don't know if it was good or bad or what it was, but it's like you kind of just get a glimpse of it, and it's kind of shocking. 
Yeah. Uh, when you see them and the way it reacted and everything. But that's pretty much why we do the show because weird s weird crap happened to us. So you're in good company for sure. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I also am one of the reasons why I have um, I generally put a lot of legitimacy in psychedelic experiences is because um, when I was a preteen, I had, um, you know, probably around the ages of about eight to 12 or so, I had gone into these trance like states on several occasions. I mean, it was pretty much like a total self, self hypnosis thing. And um, I remember, I mean, these experiences were also like very psychedelic looking or what I would like later recognize as that. But I mean, it was almost like, um, you know, you'd be sitting at school, you know, and then just kind of suddenly go into one of these disassociative states and like almost kind of journeying into this totally other technicolor reality uh, for a certain time. So, yeah, I can definitely see what you're saying without the, you know, it also will happen sometimes sober. Uh, oddly, the only UFO, too, I ever saw was when I was totally sober, which I guess was a good thing. And it was probably the most underwhelming, weird experience I've ever had in my life. I don't really understand, honestly, why people are so into the UFO thing. Maybe it's just me, but it, it didn't impress me in the slightest. Yeah. And then once you see them, you know, it's, it's, it's great. But then after a while, you're just kind of like, well, another one, you know, they don't ever come down and just talk to you. It's always some Riddler kind of crap, you know, like see me, see me real fast and confuse you. That's how all my experiences are. None of them just come and talk to you. It's more like a, it's kind of like the Riddler messing with your head here real quick. Bye. <laughs> they don't really come interact or that they do, but not on the level you want them to. <laughs> That's for sure. It's always just like a surprise kind of thing that's real fast and everything and uh so the, was there has there been any other kind of being experiences or was Gray's just it Have you see any other type of beings uh as far as it goes that was like the major one i have with what i thought was like uh you know some kind of like non-human intelligence or something like that but i've definitely had like a lot of other well i mean i did have some experiences in casadega as well where i'm pretty sure we were confronted by something in lake colby park i know when we had filmed it and gone back and looked at it it was like an orb or something like that um but that was uh uh Sorry, I was distracted there. But um, anyway, the um, <clears throat> it was in Lake Colby Park, right? And it was like kind of a nutty thing. We had snuck in there. You're not supposed to camp in Lake Colby Park. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, we did anyway. So anyway, there's this. This was actually where the original hotel in Casadega was built. And I should probably like fill you guys into um, if you're not aware of Casadega. But it was this spiritualist commune that was built um between daytona beach and deland florida around the turn of the 19th and 20th centuries uh supposedly they used like a spirit guide to go down and find this site uh, this was the you know spiritualist church from uh, new york state you know the really famous one so they set up this original hotel for members of the church and uh, other visitors and so forth and it burned down around 1920 and it was quite elaborate too it had all these like wonderful gardens and stuff and i mean you can just tell from the ruins there that some of the materials were just really first rate and 
there was not a lot of information available either about like what exactly happened to it. I know I spent a fair amount of time going around with like locals trying to like uh, find out the details of it and nobody really knew. But anyway, this was like one of the sites I want to investigate when we snuck in there and we're doing the whole kind of ghost hunting thing. And, you know, all the time that we were like walking up to this spot, there was like a grove actually of bamboo. Uh, that had been when what would have been like kind of the front of the uh, the hotel, like the courtyard. And uh, the grove had always struck me as being a really weird spot. So we were heading up to this area and the whole time, you know, walking to it, which was about probably a half a mile's trip or something like that from our campsite. It was like the trees were wrestling from like the top, you know, something was shaking them on the one side. And um, when we got into this grove, I mean, it was almost like something was running around like on top of the tree line. Hmm. And suddenly like uh, there was just this force that you could feel coming down like directly towards us. And the guys I was with like ran away and uh, I stood my ground and I can just feel it coming directly towards me. And then at the last minute it pulls up. And like I said, we were able to film that. And when we went back and looked at it, I mean, it was an orb basically that you could see coming down from the trees and then zooming upwards. I mean, it was just nuts. Nice. Uh, nice. That's a good one. I've had some orb experiences. One of my big ones, I saw these triangle craft over some power lines and an orb came out of them towards me and a friend. Like it came out of the ship, the orb. I don't know if it was a probe or an alien. I don't know what it was, but I've had shamans on that say that the dead can travel in balls of light. So that's pretty interesting to think about as well. Well, there's uh, another kind of interesting trivia about that too, is that uh, there was a kind of a Lovecraft connection to this as well, which nobody ever really remarks upon. But um, Lovecraft's uh, literary executioner, uh, R.H. Barlow, actually grew up in land. Uh, this was like where his family home was, and Lovecraft used to come down in the summers to Deland uh, to visit him there. And uh, the whole thing was really weird because Barlow was only a teenager at this point in time, and um, apparently, I think his Barlow's dad had built like a shed or something like that on their property for Lovecraft and Barlow to spend the night in discussing literature or something like that. So. There was that sort of interesting backdrop of Casadega, the spiritualist commune being there and Lovecraft uh, shacking up with this 14 year old boy in a shed to you know, talk about the old ones or something to that effect. That's, that's odd. That's just odd. When you put it that way. Lovecraft <laughs> was an odd dude. He was just odd. Hopefully he wasn't a Yeah, yeah. But I've always, I find that fascinating that he was right there next to Casadega for so many, you know, during these summers and nobody's ever really remarked upon that because I know there's always that kind of debate about how much exposure uh, Lovecraft would have had um, cult, you know, works and things like that. But it's like, if you've been to that kind of region of Florida, I could, especially I could see like around this like time frame, you know, the 20s or something like that, I believe it might have been an appealing thing to go take a day trip to, I guess. So who yeah. knows? Florida. That's where I am. Florida. Florida. So Vegas in Florida, right? Is that where it is? Okay. Yes. Cool. 
Well, I noticed what you were talking about Wisconsin. When you're having a Wisconsin death trip, we're going to get into some of those topics with uh, and some of the things that you had mentioned, Neil Gaiman. If you want to start with some of that stuff, what was the place called in America? God, American Gods again? Was it Dome of the Rock or something House like that? House of the Rock. Yeah, House yeah. of the Rock. Always <laughs> meant is that's a real place, isn't it? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it was it was kind of interesting because Gaiman was like the first time I had even been exposed to the whole concept of like power places and things of that nature. I mean, this is back when I had um, read American Gods initially. I think this would have been like around 05, 06, like not too long after it was uh, released, like maybe a few years afterwards. I had really gotten into him because I was into dark fantasy at the time, stuff that like Clive Barker had been doing. And then I think from there I read uh, Neverwhere and just totally fell in love with it. And uh, from there, American Gods. And he makes you know it's not just house on the rock but wisconsin is a huge place in uh the whole novel and i remember thinking at the time why of all freaking places would you choose wisconsin right i mean it's you know well actually wisconsin has like a, a very active indigenous history there are like tons of mounds and petroforms and crap there oh yeah well that's what yeah. i you know i've come to learn but again you got to remember this is like back in 0405 when i didn't know anything about any of this kind of stuff i mean it's actually kind of nuts because i've pretty much been surrounded by this kind of crap like my whole life i mean obviously like in the daytona beach area uh, a little further south around um was it new smyrna you had like the tim walkway and they did these elaborate you know seashell mounds and what have mm -hmm. you like, there's turtle mound if i remember correctly in New Smyrna, which is one of the largest, I think it is the largest mountain left in Florida. Um, but yeah, Wisconsin is another one with just so many mounds. In fact, I think I've seen some accounts that there were more uh, FUG mounds found in the southern part of Wisconsin than anywhere else in the United States. I there's, don't. There's a ton of them. There's a yeah, ton. Of them. There was like twenty to thirty thousand, I think, at one point. It's you know just driving through there, they're like everywhere. It's insane. Uh, and I was only, you know, I was not aware of that at all until just a few years ago. I mean, because I, you know, I also spent a lot of time in West Virginia and um, around the Ohio Valley. So I thought I had been around regions with a lot of mounds, but Wisconsin is just, you know, on almost another level with that kind of thing. And also there's kind of the singular mythos as well, which I find fascinating. Um, a bit like the Adena and the Hopewell, uh, that some of the tribes had the older ones, the Eastern Woodland culture that sort of prevailed there when the mounds were originally being set up. And um, that whole worldview was really fascinating to me as I started to study it more because it was also sort of adopted by the Hopewell and the Adena civilizations. And it kind of divided, uh, you know, the world into like, or the reality into three separate branches where you had like the upper world, the dominion of the Thunderbirds and so forth. This would be kind of like the heavenly bodies and this good stuff. Middle Earth, which is the domain that we existed in. And then you had the underworld, the kind of watery abyss that was the dominion of the uh, the horned serpents. And then there was also kind of the concept of the other, other world as well, which was sort of like a twin or an evil earth that you could uh, access through certain portals and things like that. I mean, it was actually kind of Twin Peaks-esque, which uh, makes me think that Mark Frost and David Lynch were really interested in this kind of thing as well. Um, but these were, you know, a lot of like the really gnarly things that I was uncovering when I was uh, starting to look into Wisconsin. And um, 
also was just sort of blown away by how many connections it had to a lot of things that I had grown up around and had studied uh, throughout the course of my life and how I've been just totally unaware that so much of it did overlap with Wisconsin. But uh, getting back to like House on the Rocks, that was like one of the things that I had wanted to see for so many years because like I said, I was such a big, you know, Neil Gaiman buff. So when I finally had a chance to start going out there, that was high on the list of things that I wanted to check out. And getting out there, uh, it was just such a, gotta like watch my language here mix it, it gaman i always say gaman which i know i screw up i don't know how to pronounce anything man so don't me take me neither so. you're probably right i mean <laughs> i don't know i could not be that's why i was just wondering maybe i haven't been saying it wrong which would not surprise me i've just heard neil gaman all my life you know like I, would, when I, when I worked when i worked in publishing and, and book retail that's how the publishers pronounced it so I figured we can go with Gaiman then because like I said I don't know how to pronounce any of this stuff so my Georgia my Georgia will mess up some stuff <laughs> but, but yeah what do you know about the history of that place I mean what what is it I see Alex Jordan who I don't even know who that is but he made it yeah 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 the mysterious founder of it well Jordan you know was a mystery but like uh okay so with Jordan the whole thing is okay as it goes he supposedly started building it during the 1950s and he began construction on land that neither he or his family owned they lived in madison and he would take these ventures down to spring green to do these like charming little picnics out in the mountain and he just found this marvelous spot uh, that this farmer owned and he decided that it would be wonderful to start building this you know, huge house in the rock thing there. So he starts building it. And then, you know, his friends and his family start helping him build it. And nobody, you know, as the story goes, really knows why they're doing this in the first place. <laughs> uh, finally, I think like around 56 or 57, like his, um, his dad finally buys the land. Or actually, I think they leased it from a farmer initially. And then they didn't actually buy it outright to around 1960 or something. Um, but in the intern, they have been having like these sort of boozy parties and the structures that they had uh, erected around, um, you know, what eventually became House of the Rock. And there's been a lot of speculation about what this constituted because um, before Alex Jordan had started building this thing, he had uh, had a bit of controversy around it. He had uh, his longtime female companion go out and sleep with this uh, society lawyer why Alex filmed it and then they had tried to blackmail him uh, this was around this was I think around 47 48 or something it was sometime in the 1940s and anyway initially the lawyer was going to pay the blackmail fee but he decided not to and just went to his wife and acknowledged the affair and then he turned around and caught the cops on Alex Jordan Jordan's dad was fairly prevalent in the community uh, so that, um, you know, they were able to kind of get that um, not necessarily swept away, but I mean, he didn't do any serious time or anything like that for it. So it's a bit of a win-win there, but uh, yeah, if there was that kind of uh, specter in his past, if you will, that he had attempted to engage in sexual blackmail at one point. Um, the other figures who came there there's not a lot known about them 
one of the names that has come out though that is really interesting is August Derleth. August mm. is the founder of Arkham Publishing. He's also a uh, quite renowned writer in his own right. He was one of the major guys to build up the Lovecraft mythos. He was a good friend of H.P. Lovecraft along with H.R. Barlow and this whole milieu of writers around him. Um, big figure in the whole circle of weird tales and all this other stuff. So that's kind of important to this saga. You see weird fiction kind of show up time and again with a lot of the people we're going to talk about in this early sci-fi stuff. It's important to note that Darleth was there. He was also, I don't know if he was a full-blown member of the Fortean Society, but he uh, definitely had a lot of dealings with them in the Fortean Society. The OG one is uh, something that I'm going to be talking about a lot tonight, too. So Derleth had connections to both of these folks. Okay. Uh, another guy I'll kind of point out right quick, too, in the whole milieu of, like, pulp fiction and stuff, who was a big resident of Wisconsin that people don't really realize was Raymond Palmer, the editor of Amazing Stories, and then the founder of Fate Magazine. He did a lot of the editing in Amazing Stories when he lived in Chicago, but he was from Milwaukee originally, and then he relocated to Milwaukee around 1950 when he was doing Fate Magazine. Of course, Palmer is the guy who launched the Shaver Mysteries, and uh, he actually got good old Richard Shaver to move back to to move to Wisconsin to live next to him for about a decade. And uh, Palmer also was a huge figure in starting the whole modern UFO mythos. Uh, he helped publish Kenneth Arnold's sighting. He sent Kenneth Arnold out to investigate uh, Robert Dahl's claims, all this other good stuff. So this is a guy who had a profound influence on shaping this whole high weirdness milieu and he was also a resident of wisconsin along with good old august derleth mr hp lovecraft executioner in the uh post-war years himself so okay alex jordan one other thing i gotta point out about this guy too that's really interesting is that uh his from his mother's side of the family they were descended from this swiss banking family i think they were the sailors or something s-a-l Y-L-E-R-S-A-I-L-E-R, -E -E depending upon which uh, spelling you use. But this was an extremely wealthy Swiss banking dynasty. Jordan's, you know, mother's side of the family, they were like from one of the minor, you know, like fourth or fifth sons or something that had to go to America to earn his own way type thing. But still, it's very interesting that he did have this sort of noble ancestry in light of one of the other residents around spring green that we will discuss in a moment and also in terms of just where the heck the money for house in the rock came from because again if you've seen this place even like the original structures and stuff it's really impressive i mean it was built you know i mean it's basically the side of like this mountain and what have you it's this wasn't cheap yes his his dad you know and his his parents, I mean, they had money, but it still has been a bit of a mystery as to where exactly the funding for this kind of stuff like went. Uh, so anyway, uh, he builds up all this stuff. And finally, in 1960, supposedly, his dad convinces him to open it up to the public. And it almost immediately becomes a hit. They do like 35K worth of business in the first year alone. And I think by like 63, 64, it's making in the millions. And this was the isn't this is with them only basically putting up like some billboards and what have you across the Midwest to advertise it. Heck, I don't even know if they did the billboards at this point. That might have come later. I mean, it was 
the official story is almost like a straight up, you know, field of dreams type saga. Like if you build it, they will come kind of thing. And that's more or less what happened. Uh, as for the interior, um, you know, I point out the sort of Catholic lineage of his family because it's almost like a Holy Roman uh, Empire courtroom at times uh, on acid. Uh, I think Bosch, B-O-S-C-H, uh, the guy who did the Garden of Earthly Delights was definitely a major um, influence on it. Also, um, the architecture of the one. Who is the Swan Prince? Uh, Wham, do you know off the top of your head? Uh, from Bavaria. Oh, doesn't Lavenda talk about that? I believe so. It wouldn't. Yes. Hold on um, just a second. Swan Prince. Swan Prince, right? Let me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was Frederick, maybe, or. Oh, gosh, I. Hold on just a second. But he was known for some really strange architecture as well. Um, that was definitely an influence. Uh, there were some other very curious ones. It's not really talked about, but I suspect the Biltmore, uh, the Vanderbilt Mansion in North Carolina was also an influence on it in terms of some of the um, the symbolism and stuff in there, and just also the kind of concept because it's it's kind of a similar ideal. You know, you build this huge elaborate structure in the middle of freaking nowhere, and then you kind of set it up as like a tourist attraction. Uh, so, now, I, I can't find out who it is right off the bat. I'd have to go look it up, but I know I know exactly what you're talking about, who you're talking about. But my brain is old. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I, there's a, a lot of stuff with all this to remember. So, yes, uh, there is. But yes, yeah, so the interior of it is just absolutely insane with like the architecture and stuff. I mean, there's like the infinity room. Uh, which almost seems like you're glancing into like an endless array of mirrors for all eternity. Uh, it definitely lives up to his name. There is <clears throat> the story Carousel uh, that's in American Gods. And, uh, you know, again, I don't know. I, I haven't seen when they get to it in the TV show. So I don't know if they show all of it, but the whole room that it's in is just really crazy. I mean, the door that you exit in, is shaped like a giant devil's head with like its mouth agape which is the door that you walk through you look like upwards and it's like there are these demonic figures like kind of circling around the ceiling above you and what have you um <clears throat> there's another room that's just enormous that depicts this battle between these giant sea monsters as sculptures and what have you. And um, there's also just the really insane use of animatronics throughout, which is something that I've started to wonder and war more and more about after uh, I saw The Evil Within and have pondered Five Nights at Freddy's and some of this other uh, insane <laughs> stuff that's come out in recent years. Five Nights at Freddy's. Yeah. And um, there is also the obsession with dolls and clowns. I mean, there's basically an entire section I of the House of the Rock dedicated to dolls and an entire one dedicated to clowns one of the really insane ones there is just this portrait of this insanely evil looking clown with like a shriners thing next to it i would like not be able to go to those places in that building it's well you have to remember too wisconsin was literally the carnival capital of the united states at the end of the 19th century okay ringling brothers circus was founded in sox or near sox city it was founded in baraboo which is right next to sox city 
uh, where Arkham Press was later set up. Okay. And then Barnum and Bailey's outfit was set up near the Milwaukee area. All right. So, and then on top of that, there were all of these other circuses that used to like winter there in the uh, Wisconsin area, the Southern Wisconsin area. So um, I don't know if you guys have ever seen Nightmare Alley, but I'm pretty sure like the beginning of the movie when, you know, he's at the uh, circus on the circuit with them is supposed to be set like in Wisconsin, especially uh, the more recent Del Toro version. Because I mean, this is like pretty much where all of these, um, you know, I mean, the outfits were based out of in that time frame up until like the early, uh, you know, like 1920s thereabouts. So there's this really very rich tradition of circuses and clowns in Wisconsin on top of everything else, like Baraboo and some of the other towns there have these cemeteries with some of these elaborate graves that were basically set up by carnies. In fact, carnies are mostly the people interred at them. So it's, it's really a remarkable thing about the whole place. So House in the Rock, Spring Green, Wisconsin. Why the heck would you decide to put this elaborate edifice up in this desolate region? Well, Alex Jordan was not the first individual to be drawn like a moth to a flame to this enigmatic area that has gone on to have a profound influence on popular culture and really the Western psyche by default. Another resident uh, of Spring Green was Frank Lloyd Wright. Frank mm. Lloyd Wright's Studio slash residency Talesian is approximately seven miles from House of the Rock. They are both off of Highway 23, which is absolutely wonderful if you're a Discordian. Yes, uh, that's true. That's very true. Synchronicities uh, are abounding here. Right. Well, if you want to know something else, too, there's also U.S. Route 23, which I've been covering on the farm lately, which is what the Biltmore is off of. But it's also, sadly, it's where a lot of the Adena uh, and the Hopewell uh, mounds are off of in uh, Ohio Valley area and what have you. Um, so there's a lot. Of... I've noticed just in general, a lot of weird stuff is located off of Highway 23s across the United States or U.S. Route 23s or whatever. Gosh, like Athens, Georgia. No, not Athens. So some weird spot in Georgia <laughs> through like US Route 23 as well. It's really nuts. But Highway 23 in Wisconsin has got Taliesin and House on the Rock, among other things. But Taliesin is another crazy spot. And uh, for those of you unaware of the history of it, um, this is where Frank Lloyd Wright's mistress was murdered in 1914, along with her two children and four other people. It's um, actually to this day uh, tied for, along with the Sick Temple shooting in 2012, as the worst mass murder in the history of Wisconsin. And the whole thing is just really, really weird. I mean, I greatly question, I mean, the official narrative of this. As it goes, um, Frank Lloyd Wright and his son Lloyd Wright uh, were in Chicago at the time working on the Midway Gardens, I believe. Uh, and his mistress, uh, Mama Cheney, was there with, I guess, her two kids and, uh, you know, the staff and whatnot. And uh, there was this chef there uh, who had claimed to be from Barbados, but I guess it later came out that he was actually from Alabama. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> That's funny. He, well, maybe he astrally traveled to Barbados, right? Well, I, we'll get into this in a minute here, but okay. Just okay. So this guy was described <laughs> as a genial presence at Taliesin for a while until he just suddenly decided to start spinning up, you know, late nights uh, staring at a butcher knife or something in the kitchen. So anyway, they decided to let him go on August 15th, 1914, and as the story went, he would not go quietly into the night. So what happened is that he either locked the staff in the dining area while they were having lunch, set it on fire, and then waited for the survivors to come out and killed them with a hatchet. Oh my or, or he went into the studio where Mama Cheney and her children were and murdered them with a hatchet. In fact, I think one of the kids too, he had to chase around the courtyard to kill them with a hatchet. Oh my God. And somehow Jeez. the two groups we're totally oblivious to this. It's like, okay, regardless of like which one happened first, like he's either killing a woman and her two kids with a hatchet, and the staff is having lunch and is totally unaware of this going on. Because, you know, I guess she wasn't screaming loud enough or something. Or on the other hand, she's in the studio with her kids and is totally unaware of the fact that he set the dining area on fire and is then murdering the staff with a hatchet. This is not funny, but I... Yeah, I know, yeah, yeah, it's just like... The, it's not funny at all, but... And then, Yikes. supposedly, he goes into a fireproof furnace on the residency as it's burning down, and then decides to try to commit suicide by taking hydrochloric acid or something like that, but... That doesn't work, Jeez. and he manages to survive this. Jeez. Which so, guy is this again? What's his name? Julian Carlton is his name. Julian okay. Carlton. Okay. So there's a lot about this that's really freaking weird. So first off, <laughs> I'm really dubious about him as the killer because, I mean, this just screams out like, look at the crazy African-American. He just went crazy because he couldn't handle being fired. And I mean, it just drips with racism. And I mean, certainly um, Frank Lloyd Wright's uncle, Richard Lloyd Jones, uh, was later implicated in some of the uh, the, I think the lynchings of African-Americans in Tulsa when he took over the papers there and what have you. So I think that there was a strong air of yellow journalism to the rush to try to blame Carlton for yeah. the killings, or at least solely with this. I definitely think that there was a lot more to this than what has been officially reported and trying to pin all of this on Carlton is, you know, disturbed the lone nut is uh, about par of the course uh, for a lot of the uh, general racism in the country at the time. Um, but the other thing about the killings of Taliesin uh, that I find are just really probably the most disturbing aspect of this is how much they uh, bear resemblances to certain uh, sacrificial rites among the ancient Celts. And uh, amongst them, there was like a trinity of gods. There was, uh, was it Issos, uh, Taurus, and um, Terianus, I believe. I don't have the names here in front of me. But um, Isis was the one who uh, was very much into um, 
either hangings or uh, having his victims uh, stabbed repeatedly, and specifically with an axe. Uh, in fact, most of the images we've found of this deity were on um, or were on ritual axes and things of that nature, and he's usually depicted with one. Uh, I believe uh, Terranus was the one who uh, liked his victims burned alive. He was the one that the Wicker men were usually dedicated to. So burnings were really prevalent here. And then finally, Teutonus uh, was the one, if I remember correctly, liked his victims drowned. Uh, so there were no drownings, but it's interesting to note that Frank Lloyd Wright had installed a uh, Japanese... Um, a pond right in the courtyard of Taliesin where like all of this violence would have been unfolding around. And um, the Japanese, like if you've seen the Ringu films, like there's definitely a lot of traditions in Japan about how bodies of water and specifically wells and pools can be used to, um, to trap the spirits of the dead in. Mm -hmm. so, uh, it's also very interesting that there was this Japanese pool right in the midst of uh, where these killings would have uh, happened. So uh, that was uh, one of the fascinating things that also sort of characterized Spring Green. But um, Frank Wood Wright did not give up on it, even though the uh, residential area totally burned down. But miraculously, his studio was totally spared. That's another uh, <coughs> lovely thing about it. His studio was totally intact. And uh, it burned down again in the 20s, the residential area. But yet again, his studio was intact. Uh, but anyway, they went on to set up the Frank Lloyd Wright Fellowship at Taliesin, and this is where a lot of his accolades would later be were trained. So in this sense as well, Frank Lloyd Wright's uh, architecture kind of spread out from tiny Spring Green, Wisconsin as well. So that's kind of another uh, way that it's begun to subtly influence popular culture and uh, other aspects of American culture in general. And then kind of finally, uh, another thing that sort of came up in this whole area more recently uh, was Circle Sanctuary. They've got like their whole headquarters and their, uh, I think, 500 acre compound there, which is about uh, 15, actually it's 15 minute drive, but I think it's only about eight miles or so. From, like that's the, that's the Selena Fox um, <laughs> community. Yeah. Yeah. I know those folks. Yeah, it was, I, I mean, for a lot of years, it was one of the two major neo-pagan uh, uh, communities, and there were um, groups in the United States along with the Church of All World, and mm -hmm. again, it was so instrumental in a lot of things, such as, um, you know, getting legal recognition uh, as for the, um, um, the priesthood to be, like, considered clergy and that kind of thing in the eyes of the law, for setting up a legal defense fund, um, for a lot of pagans. In fact, I think a big reason why we have chaplains now who are pagans in the U.S. Army is because of the work that uh, Circle mm -hmm. Sanctuary did for their legal defense fund and so forth. So there was a lot of that kind of stuff with that as well. And then also the festivals, that's kind of the other big thing. They were really instrumental in setting up the pagan spirit uh, gathering and a lot of the other subsequent festivals that spread out across the country in the 1980s. So even before... Neil Gaiman started Gaiman. Did we go with Gaiman? Gaiman. Okay, started to feature uh, House on the Rock uh, in you know American Gods. I mean, this just tiny little area where Wisconsin was already having just this enormous influence all across the United States. And I think it's going to become even greater now that I mean it's become such a big part of the mythos within American Gods as well. 
So it's just, uh, this is one of the reasons why I've become kind of obsessed with this area and really I'm hoping to do like a project based around it because there's so many just odd things related to this. And then also how it kind of ties in as well with a lot of characters in sort of the Northern California scene around there and also some of the ones in LA as well. Definitely fascinating for sure, no doubt about it. Uh... As far as uh, I saw the show American Gods, and that was good kind of at first, but I think some of the showrunners dropped off of it, and then it kind of got crappier, and then they canceled it. But Ian McShane was the best part of it as Odin. That's the yeah, best. Odin was he was great as Odin. He, He's yeah. always great. But they yeah, I was going to say Ian McShane's like the best part of anything. Yeah, <laughs> my favorite Ian McShane quote, and I, I may get it a little off, but people got mad about him revealing that he was on game of thrones and he died only in one episode and he gave it away in an interview or something and people got mad at him and he goes something that he said a quote something about people getting upset about tits and dragons why are people <laughs> so upset about tits and dragons it was the funniest thing but yeah he's he's great i haven't seen him in anything in a while lately but i'm sure he's somewhere hiding well he can do what he wants at this point yeah, for sure and uh, one thing, you know, feel free to talk whatever you want with Wisconsin, you know, as we go on, whatever you want to address, just go for it. But I know you brought up serial killers and cults. So I want to kind of, you know, I know that's probably a lot to get into, but at least I'm curious who were some of the serial killers roaming around there? We don't have to like get into every detail about them or anything, but who were some of the ones at large in Wisconsin? Well, there were obviously the most well known was uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Uh, I haven't had a chance to really look into Dahmer as much as I would like at this point. I've been kind of like putting that off like a little bit. But yeah, I don't because the last true crime book I read was his and that was enough. I don't, I, it made me not want to read anymore. <laughs> no. You know, penises and heads in their locker and under the bed and, you know, just a little too much. But I still have an Ed Gein one to pray that I've never read that I'm kind of like just scared to read it, I guess. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I yeah, yeah. I need to. Yeah, Ed, <laughs> yeah, Ed Gein is another one uh, who was an, uh, probably the other really well-known uh, serial that, killer. Was that Wisconsin, Wisconsin too? Mm -hmm, well, mm -hmm. Why is it tied into Texas? Like, what's the... Texas know? Chainsaw Massacre was inspired but, by Ed Gein. But he was never in Texas at all? No, no. He, no. I didn't even know that. Oh, no. man, I thought it would happen in Texas. I didn't even realize it was. Well, it, you know, like like in Silence of the Lambs, you know, the serial killer yeah. there, Buffalo Bill, Buffalo Bill or whatever his name was, he, he he the various things that he did were inspired by several serial killers, including Ed Gein. Um, so basically, you know, some of those those. Some of the, the Hollywood serial killers, they just take like the weirdest or grossest things from particular of the of the yeah, killers the and they sort of weave them together. That. It's like a pretty boy. They made them pretty boy instead of ugly. I do find it really just, you know, absolutely fascinating, though, that Dahmer's become such a big pop culture staple, like in the last year or so. I mean, you just, you didn't really hear a lot about Dahmer, and then suddenly he's got, like, not one, but I think two separate Netflix, like, uh, series coming out. Right. I think they're both out now. Like, just out. I want to see that, but I've just been, I don't know if I need to. <laughs> kind of, I like Evan Peters, the guy from American Horror Story, but. You know, American Horror Story is a little too much sometimes, too. But I don't know. I may watch it one year, but maybe not. 
Well, well, as Jeffrey knows, what you may not know is that um, I, you know, I knew a serial killer uh, who, except for the cannibalism specifically, pretty much did a lot of the same kinds of things that Dahmer did. Oh, really? And he's not as well known because he didn't have as many at least recorded or confessed victims. And this was Bob Verdella in Kansas City, Missouri in the late 1980s. Okay, okay. I think I know. And, and uh, um, you know, he kept souvenirs and he, 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 what he did was is he held people for longer periods of time, you know, whereas Dahmer, he pretty much had disposed or killed his victims you know, by the next day, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Berdella held on to his his victims for weeks, torturing them. Wasn't um, there something about super glue? Why do I always remember super glue? Is there something? I have no there? idea what you're talking about there, but yeah, he, huh. but, but uh, he might have used super glue. I don't know, but you know, he did. He, you know, he. There's only been there's only ever been one true crime book that's ever been written about Berdella. Um, only one really poorly done, um, overly sensationalistic and, and, uh, very, um, stereotypical about gay men movie, uh, that's ever been documentary that's ever been done about him. And there are a lot of interesting issues surrounding why that is the case. Um, you know, I, I did a couple of interviews with, uh, the guys at Conspiranormal about it and talked about, um, you know, some of my suspicions uh, um, about some of his possible connections or kind of tangential connections to the Franklin scandal um, or elements of the Franklin scandal. After I did the first of those interviews, I was contacted by the niece of one of the victims. And she had done quite a bit of research on her own and um, she, uh, she interestingly had come to a lot of the same conclusions I had independently based on you know her her research because she's been able to have more constant research but um, it, it it was it, it's it's an interesting question you know the the question is to how and and if um, certain serial killers are connected to larger um, groups. You know, I, I don't think that I, I don't think that that <coughs> Franklin scandal was not a cult per se. It was a syndicate essentially. It was a yeah. human and and drug trafficking syndicate. Um, but certainly, um, what ended up being exposed, which I was when I did the first interview, I didn't know about until after I had spoken to the niece and was presented with additional information that has never been made public um, was that Berdella was into some weird spiritual stuff that he got sort of, he sort of backed into, which I did not know about. And um, how, if, if he were, if he was caught, he, if he was connected in some way to other, any other cult that I don't, I'm, I'm not aware of that so much, but I do think that there's sufficient evidence to suggest that he was connected to a sadomasochistic group. Yeah. We'll see. In some of this stuff. 
Well, see, and that's like what I have been, you know, trying to like look at myself. I mean, specifically in relation to Wisconsin, because uh, what really had got my interest uh, with Wisconsin was its uh, links to the uh, the purported smiley face killers. Uh, yeah. And specifically, I'm just going with like the research on this that's been done by um, I think it's Kevin Gannon and like a few of the other ex-cops. I've tried to just stick with that and not like the more sensational accounts because you get into some of this. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, thousands of deaths are being attributed to it. I don't think it's anywhere near on that like scope or realm. But um, but in terms of the work that Gannon and like the people working with him done, I think it's pretty solid on the whole. And there's a very compelling argument to be made for a few of the regions specifically. But one of the ones that they uh, zeroed in on in both the book and then the subsequent docu-series that they did on Oxygen Network was La Crosse, Wisconsin. And La Crosse is like right there at kind of the border between Wisconsin and Minnesota. And uh, that whole, you know, kind of area around Minneapolis is like also a really big uh, region for a lot of smiley victims. But on the whole, just Wisconsin, there, uh, there are victims that have uh, hailed from all over the state that have been uh, pretty compellingly linked to the smiley face killers by Gannon and uh, company. So that was something that I was really uh, struck by, especially because of the... I think really like the kind of ritualistic aspect of the smiley face killings in terms of the use of water repeatedly. Because like I said before, you know, water seems to be a recurring theme in some of these uh, uh, instances of human sacrifice reported throughout uh, history. And certainly uh, there is sort of this like eerie connection in terms of, um, you know, some of the more recent things that have gone on with, uh, you know, in pop culture, some of these other things like that. And then also the use of the smiley face as well, which is really interesting. I mean, I think that that was probably a reference in some way to like the Glasgow smile. And a lot of this sort of traces back um, to some dark currents from Northern California and LA uh, that are also sort of tied into this uh, kind of weird milieu in uh, Wisconsin around Spring Green and Madison and what have you, bizarrely enough. Um, but I'm trying to figure out like the best way to sort of present this in the most coherent fashion. Uh, but I, to me, the sort of like next figure you would have to like start to look at to kind of like make these two connections would be George Dell, uh, who is a guy that's been linked as a primary suspect uh, for the Black Delilah murders. And uh, specifically, he was linked by this by his son, Steve Hedell, who was a retired LAPD police detective. Uh, he's written at least three books now uh, on the possibility of his father um, being the Black Delilah killer. And it's very compelling, uh, especially since at one point he was able to acquire uh, recordings that the LA district attorney had done of his um, the home that he and his uh, family had uh, occupied in the late 1940s and essentially his dad all but acknowledged uh, the murder on uh, these recordings so that and a lot of the other stuff he's compiled uh, really makes for a pretty damning case um, but the thing about this that's really weird is that uh, Steve Hadell believes very strongly that the Black Delilah actual murder occurred in the house that they were living in. And this house was the John Soden house in L.A., sometimes known as the Franklin House. And it was designed by Lloyd Wright, 
Frank Lloyd Wright's son and the one who had uh, been with his father uh, in Chicago at the time of the Taliesin murders. And I find that in and of itself to be rather curious that there seems to have been, you know, these two uh, very ritualistic murders that unfolded in both uh, residences that have been uh, designed by the Wright family. And um, in the case of George Hadell also, um, he seems to have been quite, even though he uh, came from a Jewish family, he seems to have been quite obsessed with Celtic spirituality. Uh, he used the solar cross as a symbol for a lot of the companies that he uh, founded and ran over the years. And uh, Steve Adell later found out that his father had quite a keen interest in um, Ogum, I think, script. It's kind of like the Celtic equivalent of rune script or something. Right. Ogum. Ogum. Yes, yes, Agum. yes. Thank you. So he had that kind of like interesting connection as well. And he was also very tied into some of these other circles in LA. He was a good friend of John Houston, the director of uh, Henry Miller, the author of uh, Tropic of Cancer and all that other good stuff. Uh, Man Ray, the surrealist artist, was a friend of George Adele as well. But I mean, also Lloyd Wright was kind of a part of this social circle. So Hadell does this very ritualistic murder uh, of Elizabeth Short. And usually people focus in on the bisection and a lot of the other stuff, but I think it's also significant that he gave her a Glasgow smile. Uh, which is usually downplayed in a lot of the accounts, though I guess Brian De Palma really did a lot with that in the Black Delilah movie that he made in 06. Um, and also kind of going back to the whole thing with the man who laughs as well. But you had the whole thing with George Adele and um, Steve Adele, you know, did not think that his father had stopped with the Black Delilah and had uh, investigated several other killings that he might have been potentially linked to. And uh, one of them was the Zodiac killing in the late 1960s. I'm, I don't think he's on nearly as firm footing with the Zodiac Killer, though uh, I kind of go back and forth on this. I know Stephanie disagrees with me on this point, but I kind of think that there might have been more than one killer involved in Zodiac. But I do think that there's a strong possibility that um, George Adele was aware or had some kind of involvement in the Zodiac killings for a variety of reasons. And certainly Steve Adele outlines a lot of them uh, very eloquently in both of the books that he's written on this. But another figure that's been linked to Zodiac more recently, who's also, I think, very uh, relevant in all of this, is Paul Thor uh, by Jerry Kovac. And this is actually the fellow that Stephanie and I, uh, Stephanie Quick and I did a show on on the farm. Uh, actually, a very good one on this topic as well. And Paul Dore uh, is a guy who was involved in a lot of this milieu with the Society of Creative Anachronisms, the Church of All World, but he was also involved with some really far right-wing groups such as the Minutemen and what have you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if he was the killer per se, but he does seem to have been engaged in the letter writing campaign around the Zodiac killings, which uh, certainly to me indicates that he at least had knowledge of who the killer was. And this is kind of another thing with the Black Delilah killings that's uh, kind of a parallel as well. And that's the fact that uh, there was also a lot of this correspondence with the media and so forth. I mean, in the case of both serial killers, they're really using the press, I think, to build up this mythos. Uh, they're taking this from like Jack the Ripper, but it's still fascinating how they're doing this. And in the case of Paul Dore, you know, he's kind of traveling also in this, this same circle as well with a lot of these Discordians and what have you. And um, 
1968 is the year, I believe, when the Zodiac letters started. This is also the year that the Discordians started Operation MF. Um, I can't say it on air, um, but we'll go with Operation uh, MF. Um, that's, yeah, that's close enough. We get it. Um, <laughs> so anyway... Um, Operation MF involved, among other things, writing letters to these different publications, trying to gaslight them. You know, you'd write a letter to Bill Buckley and accuse the head of the John Birch Society of being an agent of the communist conspiracy. And then you'd write to uh, Bob Walsh and accuse William Buckley of being a member of the Illuminati and all this other good stuff. So there's definitely, I think, elements of all of that, like in the Zodiac letters, and also with Paul Doerr's connection to um, Church of All World and also Circle Sanctuary. He uh, was writing correspondences pretty regularly to their newsletter uh, by the 1980s and I think as far back as the 70s. There was a tie to this neo-pagan community as well. And there was kind of this element of uh, this druidic stuff that kind of runs throughout a lot of this. And uh, bizarrely, Door, you know, his the heyday of his correspondences with the Circle Sanctuary newsletter was during the 1980s. And he bizarrely seems to have been trying to set up a dead drop uh, with the Circle Sanctuary folks at this time. And he was trying to do that with one other publication during this era, the 1980s, that is to say. And that publication was Soldier of Fortune magazine. Um, and if you know what Soldier of Fortune magazine was involved in in the 1980s, a lot of it was tied in with Iran-Contra, running guns, that type of thing. And again, Paul Doerr had been a Minuteman during the 1960s. They were also heavily implicated in arms trafficking and all that kind of good stuff. So Doerr seems like he had uh, some pretty militant um, ties. Uh, it's also a uh, disturbing aspect of his persona that he did have these fantasies about um, eliciting a woman to come live with him and potentially another male partner at an isolated cabin uh, in Northern California where they would rape the uh, woman repeatedly until it became a kind of spiritual experience for her. Um, this is... Especially unnerving in light of the fact that, as I had noted before, Paul Doerr is in this circle with the Church of All World, the Society of Creative Anachronisms. He's going to these festivals and stuff. Another guy in this circle is Leonard Lake. Leonard Lake was living for many years at the, um, the compound that was owned by Gwendolyn Penderwin, the uh, bard for the Church of All World. That was actually where Leonard Lake met his wife. Uh, he only left there around 1980, 1981, when he went and got his own cabin with Charles Nang and started to abduct women and rape and torture them at an isolated cabin in the woods. Charming. And, uh, so charming. Such a, such a charming person. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was that whole thing kind of going out with those guys and then the whole area. Gwendolyn Penderwin was also traveling out to Wisconsin to play at the Pagan Spirit Gatherings in this whole time frame as well. And 
through looking through a lot of this and I mean some of these other weird links I've been trying to figure out if it was just a coincidence that you had almost this you know ritualistic element of these smiley face killings starting as Wisconsin because on the one hand they did have this component of ritualistic drowning which was so important uh in sacrificial rites in the Celtic religion, or at least as far as we know, based on the sources that we have. And then also the use of what could be construed as the Glasgow smile, uh, which is also a motif with the, like the lilac killing. And um, it's also sort of bizarrely referenced in the Howling movie as well, which oddly enough sort of follows like this commune in Northern California that houses this cult, uh, the serial killer hails from who uses the smiley face as a calling card uh it's just a very strange network and after just looking at so many of the connections i mean uh that i've dug up over the course of looking into this project it was just really unnerving especially with uh, the appearance of frank lloyd wright's family and a lot of this and several other aspects that i was looking at so it's something where going into it i'm trying to understand if this is almost happening on like a synchronistic level, which to some extent I think is the most likely explanation where, you know, you're almost invoking, you know, these Celtic deities and this artwork and these other, you know, kind of personifications to things like the Glasgow smile, this sort of archetypical form of the clown and things like that. And you're doing it in a region, you know, especially when it comes to like carnivals and stuff like that, where this, you know, there's already a lot of this energy there because the strange history of Wisconsin in this regard. And is it manifesting in this kind of dark form? I mean, certainly that kind of seems to me the case in California as well, which is another region that has its own peculiar history, which has its own sort of arcane shrines built in. And this is just something that, um, you know, I've really become fascinated with. And uh, definitely it does, uh, I think, give like a different perspective on, you know, just how some of these sites, you know, these seeming tourist attractions really have become places of power, kind of getting back to Neil Gaiman in the American landscape. And they've really become a kind of distinct form of an American shrine or holy place. Yeah. What, what cults are there? What are some of the cults? Well, I mean, I don't even know if these cults have like names or something like that. Just a cult in general, like a church. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I don't, you know, because I don't want to throw shade necessarily in groups like Circle Sanctuary, Church of All World. I mean, I think there were individuals who were sort of operating on the outskirts of these more reputable organizations, trying to draw the more extreme members into this kind of netherworld that they were operating in. It's kind of like the same thing with George Hodel and this kind of like avant-garde, you know, art community that he was active in Los Angeles uh, during the time of the uh, Black Delilah killing. Again, I don't think that necessarily everybody was involved in this scene was privy to it, though uh, many of them probably later became aware that he was involved in the killings in some capacity. But I don't think that a lot of them at all would have approved of this, and he does seem to have been shunned by a lot of this community. I mean, certainly he left, you know, L.A. for a variety of reasons in 1950. But, you know, these are very fringe communities. I mean, I don't know that they necessarily go about like having labels or anything like that. It's yeah. more like I think you look for their modus operandi than their actual names. I know Neil Gaiman did some great uh, Norse comics uh, where they drew the Norse myths and stuff. And he, I guess, you know, put them in comic book form. 
and then he just came out with some kind of book that re I don't know rewrites the Norse stuff. I haven't read it. I have it, but I don't know exactly what that entails. But something to do with the whole Norse myth kind of rewritten. Yeah, well, he, he, he took some of the he took some of the the most famous of the stories, yeah. and he sort of uh, he 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 sort of re he sort of rewrote them in a modern vernacular. Is what he did. Does it suck? Is it good? I haven't read. No, they're, they're good. They're good. I mean, they're 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 good stories. I prefer well, the. I, I you know I think he's just trying to introduce a lot of the characters to a, a modern audience. Okay. You know? It's I like mean, a, yeah. it's like the different translations of the Bible, right? Like, I mean, a lot of people have moved on from the King James version, um, you know, to like more contemporary translations of it. It kind of seemed like that was almost what he was trying to accomplish with the um, the contemporary Norse translations he was doing. He was trying to put them more in a language that would be, you know, more easy to comprehend by modern audiences. I'm not sure if the comic is just a. Well, they're not writings. really translations, even they're actually <coughs> retellings, and and I think. Oh, okay. and, and, and I think I think what's important to understand about that is that when we think of like the Norse myths, okay, we we, I mean, are, you know, what we have of them, are these written documents, either in the prose or poetic edda, however. It's probably, I think it's probably more than true that there, that these were just the, the, the written stories that survived and that, th that there, there were probably hundreds, thousands of other myths and stories uh, that, that were told about these various deities um, and the ones that, that survived are not necessarily the most were not necessarily the most important ones on the ground, but they were the ones that the literati of the Vikings. We forget that the Vi that Viking courtly society was a literate society. It was an aristocratic society. Viking the 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 whole Viking milieu had been completely reorganized by Harold Fairhair when he attempted to, this was sort of at the height of the Vikingness, uh, when he decided that he, well, he, he wanted to, to get all the goodies of Norway for himself, but he also wanted to sort of create a kingdom to protect the Norwegians and his goodies from the Christians that were coming up from the south. And so he, he began to organize what he hoped would be a pagan, a pagan Norwegian state essentially this was before they were called norwegians and um in uh, in his court developed these uh you know developed these this literary tradition which is what the prose and poetic edda eventually came out of uh, what ended up happening was that the christians got in anyway and a whole bunch of those people in order to escape the christians moved to iceland and they took all that stuff with them okay and so th those are the myths that we know, but we know that there were more myths on the ground. Uh, we know that there were more stories. Some of them have been preserved in certain forms in folklore. In fact, if you, if you, want, if you want an excellent book that gives you sort of a different flavor of this kind of stuff, uh, there's a book that's called The Turnip Princess, and it's a collection of... of German, Germanic, and Scandinavian folkloric stories that the Grimm brothers rejected 
And the reason they rejected them was because they are full of myth. They are full of magic. They are full of superstition. They are full of all kinds of great things. And, and you know, they're, they're written because they were derived from folklore. They're written in a slightly different vernacular, but Odin is there. Freya is there. They're all there. You know, and so these are these are stories that survived outside of that accepted mythology that we've come to understand. You know, if you if you know the folklore of Anglo-Saxon England, then you know that Odin was not a great king. He was not the high king. He was not um, he, he was not the all father. Those weren't his titles. He was a Gandalf kind of dude. That's where the image of Gandalf comes from. Yeah. It, it, and 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 that seems to be a much older understanding of who Odin, for example, was. He's much more closely aligned in sort of personality and stuff to the to the to the uh, to the Western Slavic deity Velos, if you want to look him up. Um, and so, you know, I think what Neil Gaiman is doing is sort of liberating some of those stories from from um, kind of literature hell, <laughs> you know, where the gods are like, we are not these stories, <laughs> or just these stories, you know what I mean? So. Well, yeah, and that's, like, I mean, for me, really, the reoccurring theme in a lot of, like, the stuff that I've been doing with this, like, Wisconsin project and a lot of the other projects that I've been doing is just essentially kind of understanding how mythos are constructed and spread and deconstructed and reconfigured and so forth. And, um, I mean, that's been one just in general also kind of try to understand how there could have been like a transmission to begin with um, from sort of the ancient, uh, you know, obviously, I mean, the kind of phrase Celtic in and of itself is a bit of a catch-all, but I mean, let's just say, you know, for the sake of brevity, Celtic, quote unquote, traditions into like the modern era. And uh, to me, the most obvious place seemed to be the bards. Because, I mean, from what we know, the Romans have pretty thoroughly exterminated the Druids and a good chunk of the warrior class who also had religious functions. But the bards fared a little bit better. And you see, I think, a lot of the preservation of, uh, you know, some of the old traditions initially, like in the epic poetry that you started to see appearing mm -hmm. around like the mid, uh, Middle Ages. And then later in the child ballads, especially that started to crop up like around the 14th, 15th century and so forth. Because I mean, some of them, like I think it's Willie's Lady and uh, a few of the other ones. I mean, they're almost like outright recitals of like magical spells and things of that nature. Um, a real famous example of them would be like Scarbo Affair, which um, uh, Simon and Garfunkel did like a popular version of during the 60s. But they had that whole course, you know, Parsley, Sage, uh, Rosemary, and Twine. Right. You know, a lot of people kind of wonder like why they keep, you know, mentioning the herbs in it. But I mean, this is like probably remnants from when these were like actual recitations of like spells or formulas for like um, herbal remedies and things like that. Uh, so it's really fascinating, I think, where there is sort of this evidence that, that there was a kind of transmission point from the ancient tradition into the modern world. But specifically, it did come through this kind of uh, form of art, really. And with it also this kind of myth making and that seems to have just shown up so much time and again and all of this like research that i've been doing i mean even in terms of like the whole notion of like the serial killer i mean a lot of the prevalent ones and the serial killer cults for that nature 
uh, the media has played such a big role in it in the modern era. I mean, this really goes back to Jack the Ripper and um, the letters, especially, that he sent out uh, to the press. And I mean, that almost gamemanship that he had with the media and these, you know, just very bizarre, you know, ramblings that he would have in them. And this was also the case with the Black Delilah killings, the so-called Black Delilah Avenger, who was probably George Hiddell sent uh, letters to the press. The Zodiac Killer also did such uh, made such good use, quote unquote, of uh, letter campaigns of the press. I mean, he was really able to almost shut down San Francisco at one point uh, because of some of the threats that he made in these letters. And then on top of that, I mean, just the whole perception of like the serial killer cult, uh, it's actually gotten a lot of mileage over the years out of various Discordians. Uh, of course, you know, there was sort of the uh, the meeting between Carrie Thornley and uh, I know at least one other figure involved in the early Discordian society was the Process Church. Um, New Orleans back in the late 1960s, so there was that. But then later, I mean, um, you know, obviously Adam Go Rightly actually wrote a rather good book, The Shadow of St. Susanna, and uh, Charles Manson that sort of went into some of this. Sandra London uh, has uh, done a lot of her research on this kind of thing and has mentioned it in some of her books. Joseph Matheny, the creator of Ong's Hat, actually ran an arc that was based around the whole concept of a serial killer cult around the process with Manson too. I had uh, Timothy Wiley on. I, uh, he's passed away now, but he's been on my show before. Uh, yeah, they did the whole revival with Genesis P. Orridge and what have yeah. you. Yeah, He's got some weird books from Inner Traditions where he says that fallen angels were redeemed and came back and incarnated as an egg. It's pretty weird, but I know he's on that Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia doing some kind of drug. I don't remember which drug it was. But it was PCP, actually. Was it? I, yeah, was it? I remember it. <laughs> Yeah, I, it was a trip for sure. Yeah, no, I thought that was crazy. I mean, I can see why because it's just uh, it's total disembodying effect on people, which I think is exactly what he was trying to tap into with that. But um, yeah, it's definitely a pretty horrendous experience, though, if you don't know what to expect from it. Yeah, I've I've done DMT and enjoyed it. It's been a while. It's hard to find, but. Uh, when I did DMT at one point, I saw weird writing on the wall, walked up to it and was like, what the hell? Like you would see strange writing on the wall and things like that. But that's a good one. I like the short ones. The long ones are too much. But oh, one thing, I don't know if you've ever given uh, any thought about this, but it, uh, I thought about it for a minute. Uh, Jack the Ripper and H.H. Holmes. I've had Jeff Mudgett on that's related to H.H. Holmes and Herman uh, yeah. I forget the name, Mudget, Herman Mudget, or something. Yeah, yeah, something Holmes. like that. But I don't know how I feel about it. But there is, he does say some pretty mm -hmm. interesting things about like finding homes on the ledger for uh, uh, London or Britain or whatever. But it's, have you ever given any thought about that at all? It's pretty interesting. But I don't know if I believe it. It's just yeah, I've thought about it. I didn't really see especially compelling evidence either. But there is a weird thing about that. Well, there's a couple of weird things just in general about that whole era around the 1893 Chicago World Fair. But like, I think it was in 1889 um, in Chicago, there was this club that was set up called the Whitechapel Club. And initially it had been started by the press, but it eventually brought in a lot of Chicago high society types. But the Whitechapel Club was totally dedicated to Jack the Ripper. In fact, he was the honorary president of the society. 
and like they had this clubhouse i guess that was filled with like all these gory statues and like paintings and stuff like that that symbolized like or represented all these different murders and things of that nature yeah. so they had this this bizarre society that essentially celebrated jack the ripper and supposedly ran all of these pranks and what have you around the chicago area at the time area at the time of the hl holmes killings which is a very strange thing about all of this that nobody ever really seems to talk about a lot um but like the whole thing with the chicago world fair that i've kind of wondered about frank lloyd wright had briefly worked um at the chicago world fair uh, even though he later went on to have great disdain for it, uh, though he had seen it a few times. But I've seen some rumors online. I haven't been able to confirm this, but I've seen rumors online that there might be a relation, a family relation between Wright and H.L. Holmes, which I do think would be somewhat plausible because I think Holmes did come from around the same area. I'm not entirely sure on that, though. But it's something I've been meaning to look into more. But um, it's definitely interesting in light of things that happened at Towson later that I Wright was kind of active in that whole area around Chicago at the time when Holmes's murders were unfolding. Yeah, there was some dude that I mentioned to Jeff Mudgett that he got upset about that he'd been fighting with. I'm trying to remember who that, that wrote a Holmes book. There's a lot of rivalry, uh, you know, fighting, I guess, between these Holmes people. Like, it was just some guy, he wrote a book, I can't remember his name, Adam something or something, but I just brought it up. Have you ever heard of this book? And then he's kind of got weird. Like I was going to ambush him about a fight that I had no idea about to begin with <laughs> that he got into. But there's a lot of weird stuff with that. I was just wondering. Uh, so uh, any Nazis in Wisconsin? We're supposed to talk about Nazis, but we don't have to really. But uh, <laughs> there any Nazis in Wisconsin? Well, I'm sure there are Nazis in Wisconsin. <laughs> I'm sure there were Nazis somewhere in Wisconsin, but yeah, that's the one thing I haven't seen that they were an especially huge hub of Nazis in Wisconsin, remarkably there, enough. I'm telling you. I mean, they seem to have had, like, everything else, serial killers, clowns. Uh, they had a vibrant industrial scene. They had a resort started by Playboy. D&D &D was founded there. Uh, but I can't find a lot of Nazis. Gary Gygax is from Wisconsin. Uh, who? Gary Gygax, the guy that made D&D, &D, Dungeons & Dragons. Quite possibly. I believe the two founders were based out of Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Like, that's another weird one because it also had the resort that Hugh Hefner set up. Um, in the 1970s there, and they ended up with like a recording studio in it. So uh, it was this just bizarre thing. It's like right in the middle of uh, basically between Milwaukee and Chicago. And uh, during the 1980s, like you had the industrial scene that was kind of unfolding in um, Chicago with like wax tracks and all this other stuff. And some of these guys were, you know, they were starting to have some issues with the Chicago authorities because of all the drugs they were doing and what have you. So they, they needed a quiet place that they could send them to. And Lake Geneva just happened to have a really nice recording studio right there. So what it amounts to is like Ministries Plasm 69 album, Nin's Broken album, and some other like uh, really big albums recorded right there in like Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in like the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, they even had like the Red Hot Chili Peppers go out there and some other ones. Um, 
which also raises some creepy possibilities because again this is a playboy resort and um well i grew up in uh, daytona beach as i told you at the onset and i definitely had a lot of people tell me over the years that anthony kids had uh, a thing for underage girls uh who had been around him uh, at the spring break stuff in daytona back in the day uh and then of course um well, the William Ramsey has his whole sort of theories on the smiley face killers. I mean, I don't know. I mean, frankly, I don't know that he offers up, I mean, the strongest evidence of this other than circumstantial, but um, he does indicate that there might have been some overlap between some of the industrial scene and the group behind the smiley face killers, especially the band Coil, which again is interesting in light of the fact that you did have a lot of industrial musicians going up to Wisconsin to this Lake Geneva area in the late 80s, early 90s, recording albums. So, again, I don't know, I mean, how much legitimacy it has. It's still something that you would have to do a lot of, like, research on. But, again, of all the uh, places in the world that they would show up, it would be there. <laughs> I knew there was some happy face killer, like, Lifetime movie with David. Yeah, the happy yeah. face killer. Yeah, it. yeah. Uh, remembered it i meant to watch it but never did <laughs> one thing that's on my mind right now and i'm just gonna it's kind of off the cuff weird subject i've been i kind of keep an eye on some of the exo politics stuff or crap that comes out of there and i don't really watch their interviews or stuff but lately on youtube there's a particular one that i've been looking i didn't watch it but i've just been reading the description but the, the story coming out of there right now from michael sala is he has this guy on his show i think his name's actually jeff it's not me of course but the guy claims he's in the military and they went down to florida and met with a race of ant people yeah. and, the ant, and the ant people have some kind of fountain of youth something like a tree like and they they like this guy's doing like two hour shows with this stuff twice like probably like four hours i didn't listen to any of it this is just what i got from the description i looked at the comments of all these people that are just eating it up and believe every word of it and you know maybe it's true but probably not there's just part of me that doesn't want to believe it no matter which way i go yeah we, we both but, know it can't be true because i mean the tartarians are actually who control the fountain of youth in florida it was like a remnant <laughs> you know, crash the doctor who is that what is the tartarians Star Trek oh, or Dr. Am I doing your right, Tartaria? You haven't heard about that yet. Sounds familiar, but, but there's like this are... there's this whole subculture and conspiracy theory now that like all of these like major structures, you know, were built by the Tartars and like they had this massive civilization across North America that we just built onto or something like that. Interesting. I'll have to look it up. That's the that, those are Turkish people. Tartars, or yeah, I believe so. Okay, yeah. Like well, anyway, the, the stuff is with the exopolitics. These people should be writing Amazon erotica with Alien and Bigfoot and making, you know, the like the come for Bigfoot. The, the, look at the big bucks, man. <laughs> yeah. But there's also this lady, Alina Dannon. Like, I don't know if that's, I doubt that's her real name or she got it from Lord of the Rings, but she's feeding into it. And they all like Alfred Weber, him, and just exopolitics. It really is like alien erotic, like just seems like they just make up crap. And I'm someone that's seen UFOs and weird beings, but this stuff and people eat it up. It just, I guess it just, 
I don't know what to think of it. It's just a lot. But I noticed that was on the Michael Sala uh, YouTube stuff. And it's like this four-hour, two-hour, you know, basically this dude saying he went down there and met with ant people. And then that they, they gave him a seed. This is all from the description now. I didn't listen or watch any of it. Just reading the description, you know, from the, on the bottom of it. And supposedly he went there and they gave him a seed to this tree. But our government gave it to the Europeans and the ant people got mad, but they were supposed to keep it in the U.S. So it's like, <laughs> anyway, it's just crazy stuff, you know, that I don't understand exopolitics. It just seems like to me just making up crap with no evidence, you know. And I mean, there's a lot of UFO evidence. We have videos. One of my go-tos, Dan Aykroyd Unplugged, that Michael... Uh, Sarita dude, he's kind of nutty, but kind of a trumple gooch, I think, and maybe a QAnon wanker or whatever. That's another thing that we we're going to talk about. But like David Wilcock, I've never been into him. I have like one book from him a publisher sent me without asking, but I noticed he is a QAnon dude, you know, and it's just crazy. Like, I'm just trying to under, you can't understand it. It's just nuts. Like, I don't, I can't grasp it like this. They're just stupid, I guess. I don't really know. <laughs> but what was, I know, uh, what was some of the cue stuff that you got into? I'm always trying to understand it because it kind of seems like there's this underlying thing of Trump, the dude from China, and Putin are like all on the same weird team and they're battling the New World Order, uh, the Luciferians, and they're all like on the same weird team, but QAnon's just kind of like, the wanker radio station of it all. Like I'm just trying to, like I, I'm just trying it's to. Like wanker radio it's hard to, it's hard to wrap your head around. You know? but, oh god! I don't like anybody, I like Bernie. That's the only person in politics that I've ever liked. So other than that, well, I mean, QAnon is. I mean, it's most likely an alternate reality game um, that was partly sponsored by some of the individuals that took over Cicada 3301 after its heyday. But I mean, the thing is, is that a lot of these folks had a backdrop in kind of like the new age and uh, the UFO communities. And that's, I think, something that a lot of people don't appreciate is they really have gone to greater lengths to try to target a lot of people in the UFO and the New Age community, which is why, you know, when you look at some of the Q followers, I mean, there's a staggering amount of like soccer moms that, I mean, are into, you know, crystals and I mean, a lot of the other trappings of the New Age who end up getting pulled into it. Uh, but that's the background that a lot of these people have. I mean, one of the figures who's probably played an interesting role in it was a uh, guy who uh, uses the alias Frank Bacon. Uh, but this guy, uh, his mother was a big figure in UFON for many years and uh, probably uh, had some dealings with the Bigelow people. <laughs> so, um, yeah. He creeps me out always in Bigelow. <laughs> But that kind of goes in again to just the fact that, I mean, within the UFO, you know, within the UFO community, I mean, there's also been sort of a use of the alternate reality games or sort of variations on that stuff for years to manipulate the narratives for a lot of this stuff. I mean, QAnon was really a you know, kind of like a watered down manifestation of a lot of this stuff, which is something I've been trying to kind of explore in a book. I've been working in on it. I've always wondered if it's like a Russian psyop on this or something, because it seems like oh, no, it it's, them. it's just a, 
And then the, some of them, you know, a lot of them think JFK, one of the JFK, not JFK, one of the freaking Kennedys is alive and doing it or something weird. I still don't understand. Like, he didn't die and he's alive and all this. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, again, I mean, the kind of the basis for the a lot of the ARBs was Operation MF. You know, again, so you got to keep that in mind, which, I mean, used conspiracy theory really as a kind of performance art. I mean, people kind of forget this, but, I mean, a big part of why we have, like, the Illuminati ethos, for instance, to the extent that we do now is because of the Discordians and Operation MF. Uh, I mean, I really can't see that uh, the Illuminati being such a staple of popular culture otherwise if it wasn't for the Illuminatus trilogy. I mean, that's probably where, honestly, a lot of people first heard about a lot of this stuff. So, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's a way that, I mean, a lot of these uh, different conspiracy tropes, many of them that were, you know, kind of brought out of this sort of anti-Semitic milieu around the late 19th, early 20th century have been repackaged to the public over and over again. Uh, like I said, I mean, that's been sort of like my big focus for I me mean, the last year or two is to start to see a lot of this stuff as sort of a kind of performance art or, I mean, almost a ritualistic drama of some kind or other. Because, I mean, that's almost how a lot of the people weaving this, I mean, see it. I mean, even a lot of the military individuals, I think, increasingly. I mean, again, you know, it's it's not a coincidence. A guy like Michael Aquino spent almost his entire career in psychological warfare. Or that, I mean, another guy like Edward Lansdale, I mean, was essentially the visionary behind the Modern Joint Special Operations Command. I mean, yeah. both of these guys fundamentally understood the importance of mythology and, I mean, how it can be used to manipulate societies and individuals alike. What's kind of the going uh, word on Aquino? As everyone, I know I asked Don Webb, who is like, knew him, that he, and Don Webb said, you know, from Temple said that he is passed away, that he passed away. Yeah, yeah that's what all. But is that released publicly? Is that kind of everybody knows that now, or was that just. Yeah, well, George from Cab Dub tracked down his death certificate. So, I mean, as far as we can tell, he's dead, but um, he seems to have died a year earlier than what was reported. I think it was listed at like 2019, whereas like they didn't announce his death to maybe 2020, if I remember correctly. But, um, and then on top of that, he, you know, officially he supposedly died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. Um, well, but, Don, uh, is in, Don Webb is in deep with that. He still talks to his wife and all that with Temple set. So we talked about that, but he said he was dead. And I forget, that was a year or so ago, he told me about it. Yeah. I feel pretty confident Aquino is dead, but I mean, you know, he was another guy who was revered by um, a lot of the individuals, you know, connected by uh, connected to the QAnon thing. And in fact, one of Aquino's last interviews was, was uh, with one of the big figures behind it. So, uh, I mean, it seems like up to the very end, he was kind of nurturing the stuff. And I think he had actually also pushed the Tartarius stuff. I remember correctly. So to the very end, Aquino was still I mean, pushing a lot of this garbage. Yeah, it was crazy. Uh, so what, besides uh, Wisconsin and what you've been working on, what are some things in the future that you want to tackle? It's interesting to hear what your, your, your mind gets into. So definitely keep us in the loop in the future with stuff. But what are some things that you're wanting to get into in the future? 
Well, I mean, I've got the book. What's ultimately going to be two books because the thing I've been working on now for over a year that started as a QAnon work. I mean, it's up to over 200,000 words now. So, I mean, it's going to explore a lot of stuff. Uh, the history of Rosicrucianism, Discordianism, psychological warfare. And essentially, I mean, how like a lot of these ritualistic practices were applied by, you know, American psychological warfare officers and private contractors. And then later, I mean, it's going to get into how this has been used to target fringe cultures like the UFO community and the conspiracy culture, things like Cicada and QAnon and all that good stuff. So I'm hoping to really sit down and crack down on uh, writing this thing over the winter and hopefully get the first book out in early 2023. Uh, it's going to get into also some of the stuff with the serial killers and what have you, because, I mean, it's... Um, I think it's like kind of fallen on me to try to separate the reality from the fiction of this because I mean there's been you know such a push to try to like discredit any notion that there's any kind of cultic involvement to some of the like Q uh, yeah, I mean obviously you know you have the ridiculous Q claims of like a vast satanic cult that's involved in all these nefarious activities but like Wham was kind of saying I mean I do think that there is indications of some kind of syndicate that's involved in drug trafficking and human trafficking that may have some ritualistic overtones and more to the point i mean i do think that there are strong indications that i mean psychological warfare officers have studied how you know this could be used for various ends so that's something that yeah. i'm going to try to really explore especially like in the first book and i mean really how a lot of this kind of traces back even to things like rosicrucianism and uh really yeah. the first satanic panic as well uh which was in france in the late 19th centuries the good old leo taxel days and all that other stuff so that's going to be pretty gnarly like i said i've yeah. also got I've also got the uh, the Wisconsin project going, and then more recently on the farm, going to be looking at horror movies. Oh yeah, uh, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I had to find like some weird one too. So I mean, in the next two weeks, I got like uh, Jimmy Fallon Gong's going to be on twice. We're looking at Halloween Six, The Curse of Michael Myers, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre Four. And then I got JG Michael on, and we're going to look at Near Dark. So that's pretty groovy. But uh, yeah. Halloween 6 and Texas Chainsaw 4. That's kind of interesting, too, because they both deal with the whole notion of, like, a serial killer cult. Uh, they essentially try to reimagine Michael Myers and uh, the Saul family, respectively, as, like, nodes within this, like, kind of broader network of a nationwide serial killer cult, which is really weird because both of these movies were filmed in 1994. So this is kind of, like, before this kind of stuff even had, like, a lot of traction. Yeah, definitely. Well, we got about uh, five minutes, and uh, <clears throat> definitely keep me in the loop on future stuff. I could talk to you for a long time. Your voice just—it's good. It's good knowledge. You can do audio books or something. <laughs> you nail, you nail it. You nail it home for sure. And I, I appreciate it so definitely. And I have to get those archives for the horror movies and stuff like that. But uh, I know the new Halloween. I just saw Halloween ends. It's kind of weird because in it he starts. There's this dude that. A young kid that accidentally killed someone. I don't want to give too much away, but he starts to try to make him like a disciple in a weird way. Michael Myers, there's this weird thing like he starts putting the evil into someone else. So it gets kind of weird. It's not the best Halloween, but I, I respect that they tried to do something different, you know, with it and everything. That's Halloween ends. But, uh, but yeah, it's definitely been a great having you on. What Give us some links so so people can find you. What, what kind of links you got? Uh, well, 
you can uh, find me at uh, the farm's Patreon. That's the farm podcast, uh, Mach 2, and just look it up on Patreon. Uh, you know, you'll find me there. Uh, subscribers, you get like uh, two full length shows per month. And uh, for all access patrons, you also get the Zoom party and a lot of other goodies, uh, updates on my ongoing investigation, States of the Union. And then uh, I also have a weekly show that's out for free, um, you know, on Apple and Spotify. Just uh, Google the Farm Podcast Mach 2. That's M-A-C-H-I-I. And you can find me there weekly. Like I said, I'll have uh, those upcoming Halloween episodes. And then I'm also the author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. And... um, Uh, was it Strange Tales of the Parapolitical, Post-Wars, Nazis, Mercenaries, and Other Secret History with Frank Zero. And like I said, I will hopefully have the two upcoming uh, books that will be finished in 2023. But uh, for now, like I said, definitely check me out at the Farm Podcast and those two books if uh, you're curious about my latest works. All right. It's been a great show. We appreciate it. Yeah, thank you very uh, much for having me, guys. You're welcome. You're listening to United Public Radio, 107.7 FM, New Orleans. Everybody have a good weekend. Werewolf Pack Magic next week. Happy happy Halloween. I'm not Happy Halloween. Bye-bye. Everybody have a good one. Happy Halloween, guys. Take care. Good night, everybody.